Hello and welcome to episode number two of Arts and Crass, the highbrow, lowbrow film podcast. I am Cullen. And I am Todd, and I just want to party. Like it's... 1985. Yes. Great, great, great year. Um, This is the Arts and Crass, highbrow, lowbrow film podcast. What we do is... uh, uh, introduce each other to films uh, that we haven't seen that are not in our uh, cinematic wheelhouses. Um, I'm a fan of gore, horror, exploitation, sleaze, weirdness. Um, that's my area of, uh, of expertise and my uh, area of fondness when it comes to film. And though I love movies from top to bottom, I am an unapologetic cinephile of the art house persuasion. Ooh, nicely said. Thank you, sir. So Todd and I basically introduce each other uh, to films that we consider to be important, have merit in uh, the different areas. The films that like, I might not otherwise seek out if it weren't for the purpose of doing this show, but I turn out to be happy that I did. Uh, at least that's the goal. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. Nice. Yeah, agreed completely. Nice. So uh, each episode, we assign each other a film that the person assigning it has seen, the person it's being assigned to has not. Uh, the only rule is that we think it has merit, um, and uh, we report back and see what we s- and see what we thought. Is that right? Absolutely, and that merit being on a very broad definition: merit, relevance whatever it may be within the canon. Absolutely. Uh, okay. So like we did last time, we're going to, uh, pick who goes first by the flip of a coin. Oh, this one is not a special commemorative state quarter. It's just got uh, George Washington on one side and that Eagle on the other. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sure. So Todd's going to call it in the air. You ready to go? Ready to go. Heads or tails. Going with tails. Tales it is, yes. once again. Okay, wow. So that means we start off with uh, Federico Fellini's 19... Uh, 1954, released in the U.S. in 56. La Strada. It is about um, a young woman who lives in a seaside community in rural Italy. Uh, the young woman's name is Gelsomina. She lives with her mother and what appear to be her younger siblings, uh, though it's not clear. One day, a guy blows into town whose name is Zampano, um, and he reveals that Gelsomina's sister, whose name is Rosa, uh, who had gone off to uh, travel the country with Zampano at some earlier date, is dead. Uh, and before they have a chance to mourn, Zampano throws some money at uh, the mom and says, why doesn't Gelsomina come with me and be my assistant? Uh, Gelsomina agrees. You don't know how much she's really agreeing to go versus how much the mom is sort of forcing her to go because uh, Zampano gave her all this money. Either way, she goes with him. Uh, we find out that Zampano... What he does is that he is a uh, performer, a circus, a sort of circus performer, strongman type. Um, 
and they proceed to travel the uh, the Italian countryside, uh, putting on shows, performing in, in in village after village, and we follow them as they kind of eke out this very very basic existence on the road, which is what La Strada is Italian for, Indeed. the road. Um, and uh, we also find out pretty quickly on that Zampano is kind of a asshole, but more on that later. She doesn't like being with him. She tr- runs away. He picks her back up eventually. Um, at some point, they encounter the third important character, uh, a high-wire actor, uh, a high-wire performer, um, tightrope walker, known only as The Fool. And uh, The Fool, um, the rest of the film sort of depicts what happens in the lives of Gelsomina and Zampano after The Fool injects himself into uh, those lives. And uh, that's your film. Nice synopsis. Thank you. Very well done. Um, That definitely covers the narrative. Um, I think the only thing I would add in there would uh, be that um, the two different gentlemen certainly uh, represent um, a certain aspect of of, um, the young lady's journey. Um, The one is obviously a very um, physical, um, hard, and violent man. Um, that that has her almost in servitude to some degree, while the fool who she becomes friends with later um, is the one who more encourages her to seek out uh, meaning within her own life and um, and some sense of carpe diem, some sense of you can have an identity for yourself. And so um, there's a lot going on as far as um, considerations of, of um, the plight of a female um, in those circumstances um, and how that relates to various relationships. But... Um, all right, so La Strada for me um, is is a very personal film. Um, one of my first intro to film classes before I'd ever decided to actually study film um, or prioritize film as a study. I was a philosophy major at the time, and La Strada was one of the ones that when it was shown to me, my jaw dropped, and I said, oh my God, this can be done. And not only can this be done, but this was done in 1953, 1954. Um, and so absolutely mesmerized, um, on a few different notes, um, as well as stylistically, he tended to lean towards a certain level of realism as a feed off of Italian neorealism, but then added this magical dreamlike scape to it. And that juxtaposition stylistically to me was the most mesmerizing thing I'd ever seen. Um, I was like, oh my God, it's a dream and it's realism all in one. And, um, and like I said, there was some sort of emotional potency in that juxtaposition that really, really um, had me enamored. And so, so from that point on, obviously Fellini immediately reached the higher tiers of, of, of uh, past filmmakers to look to for me and, um, and to explore as far as what was truly possible um, um, in cinema as an art form. And, um, and so I, I think that's kind of my take on La Strada. Um, the only other thing I'd want to t- say is that during the production of La Strada, um, this was Fellini's breakthrough, as well as his wife, who played the leading role, um, Messina. And um, that 
the production almost apocalypse now style was a struggle from beginning to end um, financing having to quit production on numerous occasions shooting only on sundays waking up um, at 3 a.m to catch a uh, magic hour and the natural lighting that fellini insisted on he was an absolute perfectionist um, he would spend hours choosing the right cigarette pack for um, the main character to carry he would on and on and on so um he actually had a nervous breakdown before the end of production, hmm. um, had to take a short break and then move on to finish the film. Um, but he always says this was the most personal film that he ever made and, um, and that he has the most intimate connection to it, even though it caused so much struggle in his life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I didn't know it had such a troubled production. Um, you can tell something's going on. There's a certain, there's a certain pitch to the performances to where it it seems like it seems like they have like there's a lot of emotional energy floating around i can i can understand i can see well, you tell me that i can i can sort of like think back and see how how it, it was kind of a char it feels like it was kind of a charged atmosphere that they were making this film in yeah um well it is an absolutely beautiful film to look at the photography um you know i, I do love that stark black and white photography um, and the, I can see what you're talking about with the dreamlike nature of it. A lot of the locations, I assume it was all, well, not all location shooting. There were some, there were some obvious sets, but there was a lot of like, like almost desert Italian countryside, wide open landscapes, like, Very but not in so. the John Ford way and right. more of a, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. I don't know what, what filmmaker to compare it to. Uh, the, the, the natural, um, location shooting was, was just really gorgeous though. Um, so the leads, uh, Giulietta Massina, the wife of Fellini, um, who apparently they were together, uh, until he died. Yes. Uh, a very, very pure love story. Uh, real life love story from what I understand. That's how it plays out. And the history books. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay. So say you're very much on target there. It's one of those Johnny Cash, June Carter, uh-huh. love from beginning to end kind oh, of stories. Okay, got it, got yeah. it. With maybe a little a little strife under the surface. Most likely, seeing as they were both crazy. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, you know, sometimes that makes for uh that makes for the the healthiest relationships. Absolutely. When they can both be crazy together. They did continue to work together though, mm-hmm. in a professional mm-hmm. um context. So, um, Julieta Messina plays, uh, Gelsomina and Anthony Quinn portrays Zampano, the strong man. And these are two, I wasn't really that familiar. I'd never seen, um, Julieta Messina in a film before, and I'd seen Anthony Quinn in stuff, but I was never really, the two of them in this film are just, they both just leap off the screen. They are incredible screen presences. Um, and, uh, they complement each other, their energies. Julieta Massina is very childlike, has a real innocence about her, a really adorable naivete. She has huge eyes and she uses them really unnaturally expressively. Um, and, and meanwhile, Anthony Quinn is, has just this raw, sort of animalistic brutishness about him and kind of like a, a, a th- an intimidating sexuality. 
um, about him as well. Uh, he's very much the grown up and she's sort of kind of like a, I guess today you would call her a manic pixie dream girl. I think that's appropriate. <laughs> she might be the proto, you know, maybe the prototype of the manic pixie dream girl. I'm not sure. Anyway, they are incredible. Their chemistry is incredible. And you, you feel for both of them. Zampano is certainly a lot harder to like. Uh, Gelsomina endears herself to you automatically. He's very difficult to like. He's extremely cold and he is abusive physically, verbally, and emotionally. He's, uh, he's abusive, but there are nuances to his performance that, and I don't know if we're going to spoil stuff or not. I know we didn't really decide whether we are or not, but there are things that happen later in the film and all the way through nuances in her, in his performance that really, that really do show that his excessive masculinity is masking some deeper vulnerability. Absolutely. Um, I, I love that that's where you went first with your assessment of this, because I feel like the, um, outside of obviously the spectacular visuals and the countryside scenes, um, which Fellini put grueling, grueling, grueling effort into the location scouting. Um, and, um, but other than that, the, the real key to the film is the relationship, um, between, um, Zampano and, um, Gelsomino. Zampano. Zampano. And, um, <laughs> and, and the, the, the duality between their two personas, um, yeah, you laid that out perfectly. Um, she really is the epitome of childlike innocence, um, um, naivety, um, um, truly, truly just looking for simple joy in the world and has been put into a uh, physical context that allows her very little room for that. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, he is the epitome of primal, sweaty, masculine energy. Um, and like Colin mentioned, uh, there is, without a doubt, um, sensitivity underneath it all that you don't see until later in the film. That it's very, he's, he actually plays relatively unlikable for quite a bit of the film. And it's very easy to empathize with her. Um, yeah. while, while towards the end, you start realizing um, that there really is something beneath the mask. Thank goodness for the production mode of Italian cinema in its ability to bring these two actors together. Because I imagine that Anthony Quinn does not speak any Italian. You could tell in, you know, if you watch his lips, you could tell he's actually saying his lines in English. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I do. Uh, <laughs> I, this is my first Fellini film, but I have actually watched quite a few Italian movies of the, uh, of the gore <laughs> of the seventies <70s> sleazy <laughs> gore variety. And I'm very well aware that in Italian cinema, just the way Italian movies are made, there's no live sound recorded. Right, exactly. Everything is dubbed afterwards. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and that, that lends to the kind of dreamlike atmosphere of this film, although it, it doesn't always in Italian films because that's the way they do all of their movies. It's just how films are. I don't know about even to this day, are Italian films made like that? You know, to this day, I would assume not. I would assume that they have probably uh, paired with modern modes of production. Um, I can't imagine that they're recording soundless still. That would really shocked me 
Yeah. Be interesting to look into though, because they definitely held on to that mode of production much longer than anyone else. I do know all the way through, at least through the eighties, uh, and those later era Argento films, um, like opera, uh, there were still recording soundless and dubbing. Interesting. Interesting. It really frees, it frees you up to do a lot of artistic, um, make a lot of, a lot of major artistic decisions all the way through to casting that you wouldn't, might not be able to make if you were recording live sound, if you were, if you're making films in the, in the Hollywood style, absolutely uh, Hollywood production mode. Um, so one thing early on in the film, and I know this is going to out me as a a bit of a, a bit of a neophyte, (laughs) but Julieta Massina's physicality reminded me very much of Lucille Ball. Um, I can see that exaggerated, uh, exaggerated facial expressions. Um, it, it, it really, I mean, the word clown is never used in the film. Uh, but that is exactly what she is. And you can tell that is what the character. Gelsamina has aspirations to be, um, at various points, like during the performance that she does with Zampano, she is, she does have face paint on. And later on the fool, I guess fool is another word for clown. Um, he wears face paint, but he's, his main, his main thing is, is, is the high wire act that he does. But the physical comedy, the fact that, uh, Julieta Massina's performance harkens back to a silent era, physical comedy kind of, um, aesthetic is juxtaposed with the really quite dark subject matter and things that happen in this film, uh, to make like, like you say, um, when you, when you called it a fairy tale, I think that was interesting or a dream because it is, it has that weird juxtaposition of lightheartedness and, and, and a very dark subject matter that fairy tales and dreams often have. Almost like a dreamscape inserted into a, a brutal realist landscape of some sort. Well said. Um, you brought up some really great points. Um, I'm going to try to address as many as possible. Um, I think the comparison to Lucille Ball was extraordinary, and you touching on um, the the typical persona of a clown. Um, certainly, the fool was a clown. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, but I think um, Josemina's natural tendencies towards the the fairy like the imp like the um the joyful big-eyed um childlike um and Fellini actually based her character he went back and looked at pictures of her as a child and was trying to develop her character around the real Messina as a 10-year-old oh, and um that's adorable and so that's what he was trying to capture and I think they did it amazingly successfully yeah um and credit to her obviously as well um Zampano um, realized that that was the one way he could use her in his act is that she could, that she had this playful tendency, which was very annoying to him, honestly, in the beginning and that, that he tended to not have much time or much, um, um, patience for her playfulness. Um, but, um, but then he realized that was the one place that she could be incorporated and, and actually useful to him. And so she would, what, I guess, play drums at times and do little intros and, and yeah, he tried to teach her how to play the drum and she wanted to play the trumpet, but he wouldn't let her. Right. And actually put her in paint at one point, I believe she yeah. actually had some face paint. Mm-hmm. And, um, so she really did kind of become a clown type character. Um, yeah. And that's, and that's really, um, if I may interject that, that, that sort of points in the direction of what I think is one of the major themes. If we're going to talk, if we're going to talk thematically in this film, which is identity. Um, when, 
uh, Zampano first is training um, Gelsomina to be his assistant, he try he puts different hats on her and there's a scene where he's trying to figure out her look and how he's going to use her how he is going to present her and uh there's lots of there's lots of things revolving around clothes and costuming and outfits there's a scene where um uh uh, one of the uh of the villagers um at a wedding, I think it's a wedding or a funeral. I actually forget which that they're performing at. She gives uh, Zampano. She says, "Oh, my ex-husband was was tall like you, and I have a bunch of his clothes. They don't fit anybody else." And she gives him a bunch of his clothes, and all of a sudden, he's real dapper. Like his his persona changes when he puts on these hand-me-down um, glad rags. Uh, and um, there's just a lot of performance i mean the whole obviously the whole film is about performance and it's a meta it's a meta performance piece and there's a lot of stuff where changing your clothes changes your personality changing your look um and there's identity confusion too at one point um zampano picks up a a woman who presumably is red haired It's a black and white film. So you don't know, but he picks up this woman who's red haired and he calls her Rosa Italian for red. He says, Hey Rosa, get over here. And, um, obviously Gelsomina's sister who had been on the road previously with Zampano, her name was Rosa. So there are the, there's these two Rosas and to a certain degree, it feels like Gelsomina is expected to replace Rosa, uh, you know, who is her sister. So there's actually three Rosas and there's this, uh, there's this sort of idea that Zampano kind of treats women as disposable. There are, you know, one woman's as good as another. Somebody at, you know, at one point he introduces her, he introduces Gelsomina to somebody as his wife. And, and the guy says, Oh, it's just another one of your girlfriends. They're interchangeable to him. He can put the same clothes on them and make them the same, the same person. And, um, I feel like, although it's not explicitly stated, I feel like Gelsomina gives him a little harder time, maybe assimilating into, you know, into this performance than other women that he's, that he's, uh, had in the past. Um, there's one scene the only the only other other performance that you see from Zampano besides his strongman act, which is really boring, <laughs> he basically just he puts a chain around his chest and fastens it with a, a steel hook, and he flexes his pectoral muscles and inhales air into his lungs and pops the hook on the chain, and everybody applauds because. <laughs> actually, once again, uh, appropriate to his personification and and um, some of his underlying insecurities. Yeah. That that. That his one great skill and one claim to fame is actually not that impressive. Yeah, and, it's, yeah. and he's a one-trick pony. <laughs> yeah, he's the man with the iron lungs, which I think is hilarious. Right. Call, he calls himself that at some point. But the only other other performance we see him do is a little comedy sketch with Gelsomina, where Gelsomina is an animal, and he points a gun at her. And really, I realized that during that little two-minute sketch all the themes of the movie are present. Absolutely. Um, identity. Uh, she, at one point he says, I'm after the, 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 I think it's a duck. I'm hunting ducks. And she starts braying like a donkey. And he says, that's a jackass. And (laughs) you know, she is the wrong type of animal for his performance. 
And that's what the whole movie is about. He wants her to be this type of animal, but she's a, a different creature entirely. And then her struggle comes into play in her trying to assimilate to his expectations right. and infinitely failing regardless. Because she does not try to antagonize him. She actually is quite the opposite. She tries to appease him most of the time. And mm-hmm. um, to some degree, uh, desperately does want his approval and wants to, um, in some manner or another, um, fit into the expectations and mold created for her. And it's just not in her nature to quite do so. Yeah. And um, Yeah, so thematically, there's all this interesting stuff, these layers of performance and layers of narrative that I mean, we could spend all day picking that stuff apart, I feel like. As far as the male-female relations, the um, male identity, female identity, um, identity in general, um, I agree. I think yeah, those elements of the uh, premise and the thematic um, motifs um, we absolutely could discuss all day. And, and actually, I think they've been discussed all day by smarter <laughs> people than us numerous times. Um, but, but my God, like watching it, even... If you can't analyze and digest exactly what the thematic um, intent is while watching it, you sense it so deeply and so obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, there's never a point that you don't feel it inside. And, um, and to some degree, there's an infinite sadness that's, that's um, laced throughout the entire film that, that really does come to a peak um, at the climax. And, um, and, um, and that equally, um, I would say... Um, once again, you, you just you just feel it from beginning to end. I, I, I can't remember a moment in that film not being completely out of myself and into somebody else's screen emotions. So yeah, um, I yeah, visually it's incredible. Um, I like the way that again back to the locations. I like the way that. Uh, the film is bookended visually. It, it begins and it ends with the sea um, in much different sort of emotional uh, contexts. Um, I love the way that the landscapes they pass through seem to mirror Gelsomina's moods towards the end of the film. I mean, are, are we going to spoil this? I don't, I don't think so. All right, and, we don't need to. Okay. But anyway, towards the end of the film... As she gets sadder and sadder, the landscape becomes more and more bleak, and they it's the winter time, and there's snow, and it's almost like a Fisher King sort of um, um, mythic structure in which uh, either her moods are affecting the actual weather or the weather is affecting her moods, or we're seeing what the landscape looks like through her eyes. Um, or some combination of the three. I love it. They use the word mythic. Um, that's a word that, um, that pops up, um, commonly for me when I'm discussing this film, um, mythic. Um, I, I, I heard the phrase magical neo realism, <laughs> um, which I thought was pretty cute. Um, if anything, maybe it was an, a magical escape from neo realism and didn't want to shake all of the neo realism. Oh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, this, um, Everything that Colin has said has been kind of extraordinarily insightful in um, how it plays and builds to the relevance of the film um, to the entire canon of cinema, um, as well as art cinema. Um, This is one of those odd films that, because it was a foreign film and it 
definitely falls into the canon of art cinema and today would would stringently fall into the canon of art cinema that at the time it actually had quite a bit of crossover um that it did win the academy award for best foreign film two years later in 1956 it was the first year they had an academy award for best foreign film even though it was actually released in 54 um so it did get a bit of mainstream attention and it did search fellini to the top of the craft that he was immediately a sensation overnight after this film um now with that being said this was more of a second-tier critical um, reception to the film. The first reception was actually unbelievable as far as the contrast um, and and the dispute over how to receive this film. That at the Venice Film Festival, a fight actually broke out between people who thought the film was genius and people who thought it was a complete piece of crap. <laughs> like an actual physical <laughs> an, fight? An actual fight, yes. Wow. That believed a... Fellini rumble. And I forget what the other film was, but they believed it should be. And it gets, once again, coming out of a time of neorealism where they were going for this brutal, brutal realism. And there were so many of the techniques that were developed during that span that Fellini adored and adopted his modes of production, such as using non-actors, casting against type, location shooting, natural lighting. Those are all things he took from neorealism. And at the Mm -hmm. same time, he took it to a completely different place as far as adding that magical dreamscape. And, um, And most of Fellini's ideas, and he'll tell you this pretty blatantly in interviews, most of his ideas, at least at... um, um, conception begin as dreams of his um, and or begin somewhere in the dreamscape of his own mind um, and then little pieces come together and then the narrative follows that um, and many times he'll draw out scenes and draw out figures and draw out characters and ideas before he has any narrative through um, line whatsoever um, and then you also mentioned um, the performances and the intimacy of the performances and the recording or the um, principal photography with no sound considerations. Um, They said Fellini was notorious for being on set and screaming direction at the characters while they were performing because he didn't have to worry about sound and he was such a perfectionist that he actually uh, did quite a bit of result directing, which we're taught not to do, but at the same time, because of his energy, his madness, that they said it just flowed into the characters and somehow or another, they give him his madness and his intrusive nature on set quite a bit of credit for getting the uh, performances that he got but that he supposedly yeah didn't shut his mouth very often um while on set and while the actors were performing just goes to show you kids whether it's hitchcock whether it's fellini whether it's malik anytime there's a genius at work don't try to imitate his methods right they're allowed (laughs) to break the rules (laughs) that's what i that's what i meant to say yes you have genius you're allowed to break the rules everyone else you know follow follow the instructions follow the instructions (laughs) until you find the rule that's most organic for you to break nice yes absolutely we didn't really talk about the fool much. Uh, we did, and he was you, very significant. Yeah, you mentioned his dichotomy of uh, of his sort of um, devil may care kind of uh, flighty, artistically free spirited attitude versus um, Zampano's very down to earth, uh, extremely. I, I was trying to figure out how to sum up their dichotomy because it's not. Apollonian and Dionysian really and it's it's not um I don't know it's just an interesting an interesting dichotomy that I've never really seen played out in quite that way before two different 
kinds of masculinity because it's not like the fool is effeminate in any way right um and nor is he necessarily a feminist no no not at all he's he's basically telling jelsomina what to do <laughs> you know but just in a in a much more kind loving way I guess. right and his telling her what to do is more of an existentialist and kind of uh like you said um double may care attitude um you know find yourself discover yourself but you know by my instruction of course yeah. Oh, yeah as opposed to it being this rigid hand of of um servitude and and actually i mean you could technically consider her a slave to some degree or an indentured servant absolutely yeah. and it's very interesting um this there's a scene I was thinking of this morning about how the fool is strangely sexless. There's a scene that is essentially a seduction, but he does not seduce her. Right. He is, they go out walking together and he ends up, you think the whole time, all the way through the scene, you think he's going to convince her to run off with him, but he actually ends up convincing her to stay with Zampano. Um, I think there's debate on whether that was his intent or not, perhaps, if I'm uh, remembering the scene correctly. Like, you're right, that is the result. Yeah. But was it um, proactive on his behalf to encourage that, or is that how she... Because that's when she went back to Zampano and actually proposed marriage, correct? Um... Or considered staying with him. Yes, yes. It is. He doesn't. I mean, obviously, no one can say for certain what the fool's intent in this was, but he does say one line that really stuck with me is um, she's talking about what an asshole Zampano is, and the fool says, um, he's like one of those dogs. I'm paraphrasing. He's like one of those dogs who look like they want to speak, but all they can do is bark. <laughs> there's a lot, you know, the fool like points out that there's a lot more going on under the surface, but Zampano only has one way that he knows how to relate to the world. He plays the role of a strong man on stage and that's what he tries to be in his daily life. And coming from the fool, even though that sounds like some sense of empathy, um, it's, it's a sense of awareness about Zampano, but, um, but it could be argued that he doesn't necessarily have a lot of empathy for it um, because um, something that we probably haven't made clear in our discussion was also that the fool was Zampano's uh, nemesis, yeah. that, that he was poking and picking in almost childlike ways once again um, at the strong man that was so easily irritated. And he found great joy in the fact that his um, flighty approach um, was um, was so easily irritable to Zampano. Yeah. Well, but he also says in that scene of seduction that is not really seduction of Jelsomina, he says, I don't have any hatred towards Zampano. It's just every time I see him, I can't help fuck him with him. Right. <laughs> exactly. And he even says that, that it's not with intent that I fuck with him, that, yeah. that I can't help myself. Right. right which, yeah. which is, well, that would be actually an interesting discussion unto itself, actually, the, that particular um, aspect of their relationship. Yeah, um, there's there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to talk about in this. And we actually could carry on a discussion on just the relevance of the fool, yeah, and which we kind of didn't touch on as much. But um, yeah. but but very very relevant like character. It would be I I think partially it was deliberate because I don't know really how to talk about the fool and his significance in the film without spoiling it. Right. 
and and I also don't know how to talk about it without starting to dig at layers and layers and layers of of the the heavier aspects of this film yeah. and um which would get us well past um our 30 minute cutoff time <laughs> yeah yeah so i think so we'll save that one we'll for save that a, one for later or for a film school paper <laughs> for him the actual process of making a film is a way of spiritual discovery as is the act of writing for many writers but he's always been preoccupied with the spiritual the subconscious world dreams extrasensory perception the occult once he let a doctor give him the hallucination drug LSD. It was a little bit disappointing the experience. Do we uh, do we want to sum it up and kind of get a final thought on the film from you? Yeah, um, I emphatically raise a brow on La Strada. <laughs> you got another one. Uh, I I thought it was really quite spectacular this was a much more emphatic brow raise than the last one though i would say yeah i and i i would say that i enjoyed it more than the pickpocket um and i have to say i'm happy with myself (laughs) about this because i really really thought you would yeah like i I picked this one Uh. wanting to give you a treat yeah and unlike with brisson i uh am quite intrigued and want to check out some more Fellini pretty soon. So what are, Good. where, in what direction would you steer me? All right. Um, well, the ones that are best known and that he's gotten the most credit for, are, of course, uh, La Dolce Vita, um, and eight and a half. Um, now I would probably steer you to eight and a half. Cause I think you're ready to take that leap. Oh, that's the big meta one, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, and this was once he got, uh, quite a bit more confident. So this would be about 10 years after the strata. And, um, and at this point he is that figure that, um, actually can get a budget and stretch it to its limits. Um, because he now isn't Fellini struggling to get a budget. He is now Fellini <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and quickly considered one of the masters of cinema, um, shortly after La Strada was made. Um, so, so for those that are in, that have had some exposure to Fellini and looking to see just how far he may take it, I would encourage eight and a half. Um, if you're wanting to feel it out, um, at a, say a little bit more of a, a step-by-step manner, I would say probably go to the Dolce Vita, then maybe eight and a half after that. The Dolce Vita is real sexy, right? It is very, very sexy. Yes. Right on. And, um. <laughs> And then um, quite a few other films I, I encourage everybody to seek out, too. He had, he had a very full filmography. Um, I think I've seen four Fellini films, three or four Fellini films total. So there are quite a few others out there that, that you know, yeah, I, I encourage you to watch and, and educate me. Hey, nice. Well, um, yay, Fellini and Dreamscapes. <laughs> <laughs> La Strada, highbrow. <laughs> highbrow. Ma italiano si arricchisce di un altro autentico capolavoro, la strada. Raramente lo schermo ha raccontato con tanta intensità e tanta efficacia una storia più nuova e più coraggiosa. La storia di Gelsomina e Zampanò, una storia che ricorderete sempre con profonda commozione. Ma voi perché mi tenete con voi? Io non sono bella, non so far da mangiare, non so far niente. Eh? Ma che diavolo vuoi? No. Vai a dormire, vai. All right, well, shall we move on to the film that I selected for you to watch, Todd? I think we most certainly should. 
And so for my pleasure this week, uh, Colin offered me The Return of the Living Dead. So we took a, a, a few decades forward um, from the last film I viewed. Um, so The Return of the Living Dead, um, this one was certainly more relatable to me and, and, and easier for me to comprehend the language, um, having been a 1985 film. Um, uh, directed by Dan O'Bannon. Uh, based on a novel by John Russo, um, who also worked on the original Night of the Living Dead with um, um, Romero. Am I correct mm -hmm. about that? Okay. So I'm becoming educated here a little bit, <laughs> doing my research. Um, but as far as the synopsis of the story goes, so it seems to me like it followed, to the best of my understanding, to some degree, what seems to be the narrative um, formula, for the most part, for, for these genre films, which was that it set itself up in the beginning for... Um, a nice piece of exposition to set up the movie um, and, and very well done. Actually it, it's um, it's the manager or the older employee at a medical supply store training a new young guy. Um, and they happen to have skeletons there. They have uh, corpses, anything that you maybe would need for medical school that basically all medical supplies. They have a half a dog. They have a half a dog. Exactly. So some pretty, pretty gross things. There's a mortuary right across the street. There's a cemetery on the other side. Um, but regardless, so you have the older gentleman training the younger gentleman who, and the younger gentleman is a very typical eighties kind of punk rock scenester kid, almost like right out of a John Hughes film or right out of any of those kind of, uh, eighties cult genre type films. Um, and so it, it was a really nice way within that training paradigm to be able to deliver a lot of exposition, set up the film, and it not seem too heavy-handed, too blatant, too obvious, um, to where I really liked how they set it up. And then I liked even more that they immediately jumped into the action. They just gave you the exposition that you needed and then immediately got into the action. And actually all of that was, I believe, pretext. I believe the text scrolled right after the setup. Um, but anyway, so from that point that as the young man is going through his training, um, the older gentleman who is training him decides to show him these canisters that had been sent to them by the army 14 or 15 years earlier by accident that contain corpses from a very controversial uh, uh, mishap that was being covered up by the army. And so they had just simply kept them in their basement for all of these years, these canisters that have corpses in them and some sort of chemicals. Um, the older gentleman, as he's training the young punk, Freddie is the younger gentleman. The older gentleman is, I forget his name. Um, Frank, Frank, Frank is, is training Freddie. And so at, he decides to show Freddie, um, the canisters with the corpses in them, um, because it's you know, obviously a gruesome story and a fun story and kind of the most intriguing thing he's ever seen. And so he wants to show off to the younger, uh, new employee. And so he takes him down to show him the canisters, um, while showing him the canisters and explaining to him and making a nice, uh, reference to night of the living dead, explaining to him that night of the living dead, the 1968, is that right? Version right. by Romero had actually been based on a true story. Um, and that the government had basically covered the whole thing up. And then Romero, um, um, with night of the living dead had basically changed all the facts, um, because at the government's request or something along those lines, but that night of the living dead was actually based on a true event and that where the corpses really got sent were to this medical supply place. And so while showing the young man, these canisters, 
the older gentleman accidentally bumps one or pulls a lever or something of that sort that releases the chemical. Now, this chemical obviously turns dead things alive. It's a nerve gas of some sort, turns dead things alive, but also seems... I have a little bit of confusion here in how where the zombie rules play here because this film changes a lot of the zombie rules or reinvents a lot of the zombie rules. And... And so it also turns live people into zombies if they're exposed to it, it appears. And so it can bring the dead back as well as turn live into zombies is my take on it. And I'll let Colin clarify that later. So at this point, once they expose the gas, it turns one of the corpses into a walking living zombie. They can't kill it. Um, There is no way for them to kill it. They literally dismantle all the pieces and all the pieces are still living wiggling and so they take it across to the mortuary across the street where they have a friend and they incinerate it or they they burn it and that's the only way they can get rid of the zombie that's the only way they can kill the zombie and they think everything's done but when they burn it the chemicals are let out into the air through the smokestack rain starts to come down they make a reference to acid rain which i thought was very time relevant for the 80s um comes down and as it hits the ground and hits the graves it has the same impact on all the other corpses so an entire army of zombies come alive and hence you have an entire group of people the owner of the medical supply company the young trainee the older gentleman training him Um, the mortician who they've now joined forces with, and then the young group of punks that were coming to pick up their buddy, who was Freddy, who was being trained, all within this one complex that is a cemetery, a mortuary, and a medical supply place all next to each other. And all the action goes on within that arena as one person after another gets picked off in a very, very grueling way. They give you a large clan of those 80s punk kids so that you have plenty of pickings to choose from and plenty of new ways to eat brains and dismantle and kill. Um, And that pretty much, I think is the gist of it and them trying to find some magical way to put an end to all of this. Is that about it? Uh, That's about it. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really good synopsis. Um, yeah, there's some stuff that comes in. There's some more characters that come in towards the end. Uh, Colonel Glover and his wife. Yes. Uh, which is a really funny relationship. But uh, It's yeah. a cool B story, actually, the whole Colonel Glover. They actually bring it in earlier in the film. Right, right. That right. he's the one who has been watching this 14, 15-year-old case, trying to find these canisters mm-hmm. for all of these years. Yeah. And, right. Yeah, so, but, I mean, you, you, you know, you definitely, that was a pretty comprehensive synopsis of, uh, of the basic, thrust of the movie uh so yeah this is a film which i would describe as just a blast of pure energy it's just fun it's 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 fast moving it's funny it's chaotic it is you know the soundtrack is all that era like mid 80s punk and like early early death rock um you know uh 45 graves on the soundtrack and the cramps are on the soundtrack and it's just um it's just a fun chaotic uh film and a really important film um in the zombie genre because it rewrote rewrote a lot of the rules of the zombie film um and it 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 played with the genre and it introduced this element of um irreverence to the genre um it is the it's the first film in which zombies run 
um, they're fast moving. Unless you want to count 1980 Italian film um, City of the Walking Dead by Umberto Lenzi, but that's a different a different kind of of zombie film. Um, but the zombies in this, they run, they they use tools, uh, they speak. Can I I jump in on some of this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, because these were things that fascinated me coming from a relatively naive perspective to where Uh my perceptions of zombie are very mainstream um, perceptions of the slow moving, grueling, Mm -hmm. that they basically defeat you by overwhelming you with numbers, Mm -hmm. that they don't have intellect. They don't move quickly. um, There are ways to kill them by head blows. That's the traditional zombie that I'm used to. Um, The zombie in this film is very reinvented from that. Um, And it seems very intentional. Um, um, and, and I thought, once again, I agree completely. It, it made the film a blast. Um, it's, it's, all right, I'll go ahead and let it out. I enjoyed the hell out of this film. It was fun as <laughs> shit from beginning to end. Um, and then I have lots of good things to say about it of why I think it was so successful at doing so. Um, but, um, but yeah, so it was a very different kind of zombie to me, which to me obviously brings up all kinds of questions about the genre, um, how it developed, who came up with these things. I started digging a little, and I realized this was the film that actually introduced the notion of zombies eating brains, that yes. that had never been introduced before. Yes. Um, and them actually saying, brains, <laughs> brains. Yeah, everybody knows, everybody knows that line it's an it's a piece of it's an immortal piece of dialogue just the brains but yeah this film like far more people are familiar with that than are familiar with this actual film interesting Um, yeah it's yeah it's the first film in which they have a a bit of sentience like i said the tool use and the speaking they say the brains and they say send more cops Uh, exactly (laughs) the fact that they were intelligent enough to actually get on the cops um walkie-talkie right right, that they actually um winched the door closed at one point Mm -hmm. very yeah thinking so it's an it's it's the first film to have that and it's the first film in which they specifically eat brains and it's also the first film to introduce this concept of if you dismember a zombie every part of the zombie will continue to attempt to attack you right uh you can't like well we'll get into some of that stuff um destroy the brain the myth of if you destroy the brain you kill the zombie uh but yeah, I mean, first of all, like before we really get into the details, tell me why you liked it so much. Okay, okay. So <laughs> I want to I bask in the glory of Todd liking <laughs> one of my movies because if you listen to the last show, it was it was a bit of a slaughter. <laughs> uh, see, Colin thinks the last show was more of a slaughter than it actually was. I almost wanted to start this show off with an apology, <laughs> but uh, because Blood Feast certainly was interesting, um, but but I but I did give it a a, a brow down, uh, and, and and I think I hurt Colin's feelings, <laughs> but. Um, so, so that's a good place to start because I, I can I can draw lines between Blood Feast and and um, the Return of the Living Dead and and kind of say why one appealed to me a little more than the other. Um, this film was very self aware. Um, it, it knew exactly what it was. It knew exactly what it was trying to be, and it was successful at it. And so that in itself is one of my gauges of does a film deserve respect? Um, what was its intent? Did it succeed at its intent? And then if I don't like its intent, that might be a matter of my taste. But that was its intent. It succeeded at its intent. It was very self-aware. And did it make me feel something? Um, now, typically, I always think of did it evoke emotion in terms of, you know, some, some deeper and more abstract and, and, and 
and less clean emotions to look at. But this one, when I really had to think about it, it absolutely evoked emotion. I was giggling. I was leaping. I was, <laughs> oh my goshing. I was uh, um, enamored. Um, the pace of it was excellent. It did not give you time to be bored. Um, it justified its thin narrative by its pacing. Um, it added the humor element. It added self-referential um, lines. Um the campy acting was justified by the tone and the style of the film. And that's something I love. I love it when a filmmaker has limited means. And this film wasn't low, low means. I think it was $4 million budget film in 85, something like that. It was something like that. But still relatively low budget to be trying to do what he was trying to do. Um, and so it used its limitations to its advantage and, and helped it dictate its stylistic um, direct, direction. And I thought that was brilliant. Um, um, I was reading something that referred to it as splastic. Is that something? Yeah, yeah, that's Spl- a thing. Splastic? I, I had never heard it, but, but it seemed to make sense. And so it also brought questions um, about to me of when did the marriage of humor and horror actually happen? And realizing that I'm so naive to this genre that I really don't know um, that I'm familiar with the Evil Dead. And that is pretty much my was always my reference to oh that's when the self-referential um horror humor kind of marriage thing happened but i really don't know so i'm going to wait to hear a little bit on that from colin um also something we've talked about some of the 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 simpler rewrite writings of the zombie myth that were in this film but they actually even took it a little further in certain ways um first of all that the zombies were created by a chemical they weren't created by being bit ever i don't think right i don't think so i don't think biting was a way to turn somebody into a zombie that you had to actually come into contact with this chemical um now there were the chemical seemed to be pretty free-flowing um oh, well actually no what about trash because she gets eaten by the zombie or she gets bitten and 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 sort of killed by them and then she comes back as a zombie but my my take on that good question because i thought that was my one question as well was my take was that she was killed and then exposed to the chemical oh i'm, I'm not sure i mean you don't see sure what either. happens in between when she when she dies right. and when she comes back. but trash's death and her life as a zombie was really cool oh yeah she's i mean well we'll get to her we need yeah. to talk a little bit about her yeah <laughs> um and then um oh oh what's his name prosthetic crotch um 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 the first one to go. Oh, uh, suicide? Suicide. Yeah. Oh, that was a great scene, man. He was the first one you got to see a hardcore attack on the brain. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and it was really great, particularly with his character being that tough kind of uh, unlikable, do-as-I-say, narcissistic punk rock leader. Uh-huh. Um, so so it was, it was, he was the obvious pick to take out first, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so, so pacing, but, but so even outside of the things that fall within um, my expectations of the genre. I was impressed with things cinematically that fell outside of my expectations of the genre. Um, I saw a a lot of camera moves and stylistic camera decisions and shotless decisions that were very reminiscent of the 70s new wave in the U.S. um, that you could tell very much that it was made by very cinematically aware um, filmmakers. Um, some of the high angles and crane moves were absolutely brilliant establishing shots. Um, some of their cutaways, they paid a lot of attention to their framings. Their production design was very on target. Um, they used locations as much as possible to make it more realistic. Um, 
if there was ever a time that they were shooting on set, they did a great job. I, as far as I can tell, I think it was almost all location shooting. I think so. Um, so, so just on basic production value, um, I was impressed. Obviously, the acting was still the campy, chintzy kind of acting. But once again, it seemed very intentional. It seemed John Hughes-esque. It seemed period relevant. Um, I love the little throwouts um, on some of the social issues of the time, even though they didn't explore them in depth, say the way that maybe Romero would as more of a metaphorical in a more of a metaphorical way. Uh-huh. But they threw out, you know, the reference to the nuclear attack, the reference to acid rain. They were all very time relevant issues. Um, so many things that were done well. Um, there weren't many things about the film that I didn't think were done well. Um, I thought the ending was perfect. Um, I thought it ended at the right place in the right way. Um, um, barely gave you any sense of resolution whatsoever other than possibility, which is wonderful for a film like this. Uh-huh. Um, obviously opening up for, for future films um, to follow up on the concept, but still a great ending. Um, yeah, I mean, if you bring up a mode of production, I can probably find something positive to say about it in this film. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much the opposite of uh, of Blood Feast, yeah. where I listed at first the things that I thought were actually good about the film, <laughs> or actually competent, and Todd proceeded to explain to me why they were all grossly inept. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, well, hey, you know, yes, um, this is this is just an awesome film. <laughs> like, I just love this. It's it's so much fun, and um, I dare you to watch it and not be entertained. Yeah, I really do. I, I, this is coming from a person who has no true concept of this genre or any way to place this film relevantly or, or appropriately within its canon, and none of it mattered. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. it was a joyride. Well, you know, that's great. I'm glad you liked it. I I so I guess I'll start with the 1980s. Um this film came out in a pretty important year for horror and a pretty important decade for horror fans. The 1980s are just a magical time. I was born the year this movie came out. I was actually born a month after this film came out, and I have nostalgia about this film. Just because I grew up as a kid and as a teenager watching all of those like fun 80s horror movies. Um, There was something in the air, something in the water. Um, You know, there was a little indefinable zeitgeist, but there are also a few things that I can point to as this being uh, that made this a golden era for for horror films. One of which is it was pre CGI and the peak of practical makeup and prosthetic effects. Thank you. (laughs) Because that early, as soon as we got into the nineties, you started seeing that early CGI stuff that just looks awful. And you know, a horror an effects heavy horror film from 1995 looks way more dated than an effects heavy horror film from 1985 because everybody just went CGI crazy. It's kind of like comparing Alien or Blade Runner to a modern sci-fi. Right, right, exactly. Right. And um, I am a sucker for interesting hands-on production design. So yeah. this film really titillated me in that way. Yeah, so there were so many, you know, the the mid to late 80s was pretty well actually the whole of the 80s cuz the thing came out in 1982. Um, and yeah, the whole of the eighties was pretty much the zenith of, of practical makeup gore effects. Um, 
And another big reason, probably bigger than that, for the 80s being a golden age of horror is home video. Um, For the first time, you had films that were made... There were a lot of films that this film did get a theatrical release. There were a lot of films that were made specifically for the home video market. Horror fans are nerdy. We are collector types. We are completist. We will spend money on uh, a a home video. We will spend money on on memorabilia, a physical object. Um, horror Horror fans are easy to market home videos to. And also, for the first time, you were having movies that were made with an eye toward a theatrical release, but with the understanding that they would make their money back really and, f- and really flourish on home video. See, that's so interesting too, because this was a pinnacle moment in exhibition transition um, for cinema in general, um, that in the past, the studio still divided up between A films and B films, B films intended for a different kind of theatrical release, um, low budget money makers. But Instead of having, you know, obviously projected, um, traditionally exhibited B-films, that now all of a sudden there's this whole world of VHS rentals where B-films went to go live and make money. Mm -hmm. And so for the horror film genre, I have to think that that had to have been amazingly important to its success. Yeah, yeah. That that's a big a big reason why horror kind of exploded in the 80s. And really but actually not just this is why I say there was something in the air because it wasn't just films. The horror literature publishing boom Rice, happened in the 80s that. as well. And Rice, yeah, and um, you know, Stephen King started his career in the 70s, but the 80s is when he became the most famous and I'm sure richest, um, you know, American novelist. Um, and, uh, yeah. So the horror, the horror publishing boom and the horror film boom happened around the same time. So the eighties was a great, great time to be a horror fan. And it's, it's a well that, you know, I've seen so much shit, but I, I keep going back and on, and, and like unearthing these little eighties films that I, that had not been on my radar before that just like blow my mind. So it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's an inexhaustible, um, uh, you know, wellspring of awesome horror stuff. Um, so locating it as that's, that's sort of kind of where it's located in within the larger, the whole, you know, history of horror films, 1985 in particular was a very interesting year because this film came out at the same time as day of the dead, George Romero's third film in his zombie uh, series. And this kicked its ass. Um, Most people, most zombie fans probably will tell you this is a better film than that. Um, And it, at the box office, Return of the Living Dead made a ton more. It was extremely successful at the box office, and Day of the Dead kind of tanked. Amazing. And you can't... Have you seen uh, Day of the Dead? I haven't. You haven't. You've seen Night of the Living Dead, That's right? the only one I've okay, seen. Okay, you haven't seen Dawn of the Dead. All right, no. so uh, you couldn't imagine two zombie films more different in tone than Return of the Living Dead and Day of the and Dead. And see, and that's so interesting to me, once again, going back to this um, project for The Return of the Living Dead, began with a novel by Russo, who had been co-writer with Romero originally, and, um, and that when O'Bannon 
took it over. Am I pronouncing his name right? Yeah, yeah. The director of Bannon took it over. Um, and it was kind of by luck, by bum luck that he got the gig. He had been mostly a writer up to that point and has very few directing credits other yeah. than this. Um, but then when he took it over, his one demand, which pretty ballsy, honestly, for a uh, for a writer um, getting his first uh, real directorial seat. Um, but his demand was that you let him rewrite the script and develop it yeah. to be Page as one rewrite to be as different from a Romero film as possible. He wanted it not to be a Romero film. Yeah, um, and very successfully accomplished that. Yeah, and I I don't know if it was I don't think it was deliberate. I think it just so happened that this and Day of the Dead came out in the same year. They are so so incredibly different. I really like Day of the Dead. It's it's hard to compare and say which is better. Um I've watched Return of the Living Dead more times than I have Day of the Dead. I think I, have, I think Return has more rewatchability. I um, have two questions for you on yeah. the topic that we've been discussing. Yeah. Um, so, number one being, do you think that there is an obvious causal um, explanation for why the 80s were so significant in the horror genre, literary and cinema and beyond? Um, what the, the social zeitgeist may have been of that that allowed that to even happen mm-hmm. um or if there was one or um or if it was just by chance of where the genre was in its progression or if it was exhibition or what was it that allowed horror to really boom in the 80s and the other one being that um that the return of the living dead also notoriously got exceptional critical reception which for a film of this sort struck me as being slightly unusual mm-hmm. um like really good critical reception by you know, New York Times critics that are normally snots by, you know, like the guys that typically, guys and, and ladies that typically do not, do not um, pander to this sort of cinema. And so, um, so it got a great reception. And to this day on Rotten Tomatoes, it holds like a 90%. I mean, it's kind of extraordinary, the, uh-huh. the, the critical reception it's gotten. Yeah. Um, I agree completely, but I'm amazed that so many others, especially at the time of its release, were able to see how quality this was with and, and and were able to take it seriously enough to give it those sorts of valid critiques. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't think I can answer that question. My, well, well, some of the things I'll talk about in a minute might go away towards answering it. Um, you can't argue with quality, you know, like up to a yeah. certain point, like you said, if in every, all the modes of production, this film is, you know, it just hits on all cylinders. It's a well-made film. It's just a well-made film. Yes. And, um, Dan O'Bannon is a person who has a pretty much impeccable pedigree in the horror genre. He, um, to my mind, he's never been involved with a bad film. He hasn't been involved in very many films, but he's never he's never made a bad movie. He um, he's the writer of Alien, uh, Ridley Scott's Alien. Um, he that was what first caught my attention when I saw that he had writing credits on yeah, Alien. Yeah, well, not writing. I, I think he's the only credited screenwriter, at least the featured one. Yeah. yeah. Or the, um. So he wrote Alien. He um. He collaborated with John Carpenter on Carpenter's very first feature, Dark Star. Um, and he uh, he wrote a, a zombie film called Dead and Buried, which is a little another one of those sort of 80s unsung gems. Uh, Canadian film, I believe, though I might be wrong about that. And he directed 
a film called The Resurrected, also known as Shatter Brain, but The Resurrected is a better title, which to my mind is the best ever Lovecraft adaptation. Um, nice. Or at least the best and most true to Lovecraft. It's an adaptation of the of the case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, I mean, Reanimator has a better reputation. Uh, it's a lot more fun, but uh, Resurrected is as close to the kind of film that Lovecraft would have made if he, you know, had any interest in making. See, this movies. is one of those beautiful gems, like what. Um well, this is just a, a happy exchange all around tonight because um, Colin <laughs> stating very openly that he will on his own go and seek out more Fellini films. Mm-hmm. Equally, I'm very excited to see um, Resurrected. I thought it was Shatter, um, whatever. It's, yeah, it's Shatter, how it's listed on it. Yeah, IMDb. Shatter Brain is what it is on IMDb. I've always known it as The Resurrected. I think Shatter Brain's a pretty stupid title. Yeah, <laughs> but immediately I had already decided to seek out that film because it was the only other feature length O'Bannon had directed. Yeah. And, and out of my intrigue with this film, I, I was like, Oh, I need to go yeah. see that. It's different. It's not as, it's not as fun. It's not as high octane as this film, but it's very, uh, it's, it's very well realized and very creepy. So, um, two other films that came out in 1985 that have bearing on this were well, really three other films. Um, Reanimator, which I made mention of a minute ago. Um, Stuart Gordon's Reanimator, one of the uh, very first splat stick, really kind of set the, really, really sort of set the standard for the horror gore comedy in the 80s. Um, And Fright Night also came out in 1985, another American horror film which has a very similar meta awareness to this one. I think that this film and Fright Night are sort of, they're thematically kind of cousins. Um, Fright Night, I think thematically is more interested in interpersonal issues. It's more interested in issues of sexuality um, and of trust, interpersonal trust, whereas Return of the Living Dead is much more, has, has much more of a societal outlook and its themes are more societal. Um, there was another film, I think to complete the meta horror trifecta, there was an Italian film called Demons that also came out in 1985. Um, uh, that's directed by Lamberto Bava, the son of the legendary Italian horror director, Mario Bava. Um, and if you take those three films, Return of the Living Dead, Fright Night, and Demons, I mean, meta horror has existed for almost the entire history of horror. King Kong is one of the first, like, very, one of the first very clearly meta, um, aware, self-aware and aware of, of its place in the filmic canon horror films. But really the eighties kicked it up a notch, uh, in terms of meta awareness. And part of that I think was the proliferation of home video. Um, so those three films are really kind of a crash course in meta horror in the 1980s. Um, now do you think the humor coming in being directly, I would assume tied into the meta self-awareness, yeah, all of that, ushered in together yeah yeah absolutely well one of the biggest laughs at least to me one of the big laughs in this movie is from a moment of sudden meta awareness that happens when uh when freddie realizes that you can't 
destroy the zombie by destroying the brain. And he says, Bring the movie live! <laughs> which always gets a big laugh. And, um, you know, that, that, that is... I love that line. Yeah, that's all of the themes of this movie summed up there. There's the meta-awareness. It positions itself as a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, but not a conventional sequel. It positions the events depicted in Night of the Living Dead as having actually happened. Oh, the whole plot was based loosely off of... Exactly. But the film exists in the world so both the events that inspired it are are supposedly true and the film itself exists in this world um and it's a response to that but also you get all of these things of mistrust of media like all of a sudden freddie has this moment where he realizes oh i cannot trust what i'm being told in the media and that goes towards sort of what you were talking about before and the like sociopolitical context of the 1980s it was the reagan era it was where right it was it was it was the the looming threat of nuclear destruction um overseas the rest of the world sort of hated america but all the time you had this friendly smiling former actor with a movie star like matinee idol smile getting on tv and telling americans that everything was okay and there was this understanding that you could not trust media. You couldn't trust what you were being told. So that line, you mean the movie lied? It's a big laugh, but it really is. The relevance is is actually pretty far reaching. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of a frightening prospect. Um, And there were a lot of little touches. And that's what I liked about this film is it didn't take itself too seriously in these ways that it threw in sprinkles of social commentary, social relevance, um, things of that sort. But there wasn't this like broad, grand underlying premise. Um, It was just very, like I said, time aware. Yeah. And it has, you know, it's no accident that the main characters of this movie are punks. Yeah. with great names, by the way. We haven't gone into the names. But aside from Freddie and his girlfriend, Tina, who have relatively spider. normal names, there's Spider, there's Suicide, there's <laughs> Scuzz, yes. and Trash. Oh, and also give props as well, Spider being the um, only black man of the group. And I believe he made it till the end, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, and, and once again, reflective of Night of the Living Dead as well. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't he save... He saves Tina's life. No, no, no. Suicide saves her from the tar man. Right. Spider, but then he dies. Yeah. Spider saves some... He saves Tina from somebody else, right? Yeah. From another zombie. I think he has a, a heroic moment. He does have a heroic moment. Um, and, and as they're being picked off, you keep waiting for his turn. And I'm pretty sure his <laughs> turn never came. Yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Um, so, so, yeah. The punks, they are anti-authoritarian obviously they are sort of anarchic they have you know the they represent the tone of the film very chaotic very and even to the to the point that when they're driving to pick up freddie from at the very beginning of the movie um Mm -hmm. where you have parallel action so you see them driving in their car to go pick up freddie from his job at the medical supply place that he's just gotten and then you have freddie at the medical supply place being trained and the girlfriend of freddie who's in the car with all the punks on their way there is basically like let's go get freddie he always knows where the party is or something like that uh-huh. and and um they're like well where's freddie and they say something about him being at work and all the guys are like oh man why did he go and get a job yeah, a job what a loser <laughs> what a loser yeah. Yeah. well well yeah and they so they do they are counterculture 
Right. And it's very significant to realize that the, like you pointed out earlier, this film gives a definitive cause of the zombie outbreak, a definitive cause of the zombification, very famously in Night of the Living Dead and in all of the Romero films, it's never explained. Right. As far as those films are concerned, it doesn't matter what caused the zombie outbreak. In this film, it's very definitive. And what caused it was the U.S. military and the U.S. government. And there was a practical chain of actions that led to this occurring. And even at times when I thought I'd found loopholes in the concept of the chemical creating the zombieism and or, or maybe certain inconsistencies that when I really thought about it, Actually, it was all covered, you yeah. know, like that for the most part, I, I really don't think that there was an inex- inexplicable narrative gap or conceptual gap that wasn't actually covered. Yes. There were a few places to question, but I, but I think that I think he had himself covered. I like the way you put it as a conceptual sort of it's a conceptual unity. Um, yeah. So it is the the U.S. government that is responsible for the zombie outbreak. And um uh, so one, typical 80s yeah. U.S. government versus the anti-authoritarian kids. Exactly. One of my graduate school professors like to say that culture eats counterculture for breakfast. That you try as as much as hard as you like, you know, to be a counterculture. Culture will always win. And in this film, very literally culture eats counterculture because (laughs) the zombies are the product of the dominant culture of the Reagan era military industrial complex. They're there because of, because the government fucked up and the, the counterculture is represented by the punks are, you know, trying their hardest to survive. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, it's not a happy ending. This film does not have a happy ending. Not not a literal happy ending, but there's certainly a seed planted to allow us to believe that the government didn't get away as clean as they might have thought they did. Right, right. Well, I mean, you know, not getting away clean is not necessarily happy when you get a town that's nuked. True. Oh, um, and actually, yeah, let's talk about that. They nuked Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. The government nuked Louisville, Kentucky and considered it a great success because there were only 4,000 deaths and they thought they killed the zombie outbreak that they caused in the first place. <laughs> um, right. And so a success only killing 4,000 people in a major southeastern city. Right. Um, well, I can't really call Kentucky southeastern, oh. but whatever Kentucky is. It's Louisville. Louisville. By the way, Louisville. Damn good basketball team. Louisville. And, you know, <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, that pretty much, we've kind of touched on, I mean, I can talk about the horror comedy elements if you want this actually i know you mentioned evil dead earlier that, the first evil dead came up. out in 81 but the first evil dead was not a horror comedy what would you call it, it? it's a horror film it's a very uh, it's very it plays it very straight the comedy didn't happen until evil dead 2 and that was 87 so you'd say that the comic elements in evil dead 1 were more accidental yes i mean there's definitely comedy in it but evil dead 1 i mean mostly is it plays it pretty straight. So you don't give it much credit for ushering in the meta. Um, there's not really a whole lot meta about it. It's just such a s- simple story. Really Evil is. Dead One is really very very simple. Evil Dead Two is completely bonkers and kind of sums up. You know, eighty seven coming towards the tail end of the decade kind of sums up the 
the 80s horror comedy as well as any other film maybe reanimator i don't know maybe this one but they all they all have a they're all feeding off of a similar energy okay um but no evil dead one i mean how long has it been since you watched it oh ages yeah if you go back if you go back and take another look at it it really i mean especially compared to evil dead 2 and compared to other other 80s films night of the creeps all that sort of stuff um even you know the frank henlotter stuff basket case it plays it pretty straight um so uh I mean, horror comedy goes all the way back to Abbott and Costello. I mean, there's been, there's always been self, you know, like poking fun at itself and poking fun at how seriously you're expected to take horror films. That goes back a long way. But this, the 80s had a special brand of horror comedy that this, I think, right. I think exemplifies as well as any of those other films I mentioned. That's very interesting to me. It's really interesting for me to actually track that because that was one of the big things I wanted to ask was when did comedy and horror uh-huh. Like I said, Mary. Yeah. And I would love to track you saying it, that it has a long history. Yeah. Um, and, and I would love to track Abbott that. and Costello meet Frankenstein, 1941 yeah. or some shit, I think. Absolutely. Um, I don't want to, I don't know how much more you have to say about this film, but I, we would be absolutely remiss in, if we, if we failed to discuss the, magnificent screen presence on the level of a Julieta Messina screen presence that is Linnea Quigley who portrays trash <laughs> the orange haired naked uh, punk chick I was about to say are, are, is she getting extra um, 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 credit here for um, for the fact that she was nude for 90% of the film <laughs> <laughs> that was not her crotch by the way fun fact prosthetic crotch yeah really they Did, molded i was kind of wondering because that seemed even for this film that seemed relatively extremist to show full nudity of that yeah, sort yeah it's not full frontal yeah prosthetic crotch yeah gentlemen as and ladies as much as you think might think you want to you do not know what linnea quigley's crotch looks like sorry, <laughs> sorry. And, and i'm actually a little personally disappointed right now um no but actually the, the isn't she great she, she's wonderful and 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 actually you almost forget that she's nude after about five minutes yeah. um that it really doesn't really become even such a sexual element as much as it's it's almost more of a tonal element um that um like when she first gets naked certainly you know you, you're you're your, your eyes rise a little and you're like, really, are they doing that? Is that all that rose? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, I'm not that crass, you know, I'm just really not that crass, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, um, but yeah, but then she does carry out, um, as, as a human and as a zombie, the rest of the film in, in full nudity other than obviously the prosthetic. Yeah. I mean, what did you think of her performance? Because I think it's, it's weird. It's an, un, I think that it is an underrated performance. Linnea Quigley is a very, um, so this film, Night of the Demons, Silent Night, Deadly Night, she crops up in a lot of these 80s, 80s uh, So films. this was her genre. So she, she was like the Molly Ringwald. Scream Queen, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. I think Scream Queen doesn't really do her justice. I would okay. say she was the vamp of the 80s. Right. Uh, Definitely you know. her look fit being the prototypical female of these films Uh for sure yeah but i think i think that her performance kind of gets lost in all of that talk about her nudity and stuff and she's by no means a great actress but she really conveys what you need for that character very very appropriate for the role exactly exactly and um and 
you know, th- there aren't many actors or actresses I think are great, even the ones that are declared great. Um, and so once again, it's more about how relevant were they for the role and, and how did they pull it off? Uh-huh. Um, which you, you have to give credit to the director and the performer, but, um, but yeah, she was perfect. She was absolutely perfect. And, and without a doubt, if she was in the scene, you noticed her Yeah, and not just because she was nude that, um, yeah, that there was, yeah. She definitely had a presence. And she's such a badass towards the end. I mean, this isn't really a, a female empowerment movie per se, but she becomes a leader of the zombies. She organizes them and, you know, like becomes a, a, a sort of like, you know, Hannibal over the Alps kind of female warrior, um, Joan of Arc kind of essence to her. Yeah. yeah. Joan of Arc. Um, I'm trying to think. There were so many fun things that I feel like I... I, I didn't um, give enough to this film on, on some of the fun notes as far as some of the actual scenes, some of the actual visuals. Um, and once again, I, I really want to emphasize props to the hands-on production design. Once again, the prosthetics, the um, um, all of the um, puppetry work, all of the... Um, I mean, it was just as good as it gets when it comes to that sort of thing. And, and yes, of course, it was in the 80s and it wasn't CG. So, yes, some of it's transparent, but not so much so. Like, you actually have to kind of try to be looking in this one. Um, so, between Blood Feast and those couple of decades, they came a long ways in practical effects. Um, this film did a great job of it. Yeah. When you're comparing this film to Blood Feast, there's more than time that intervenes between the two. There's also right. talent and care. Absolutely. <laughs> a, a director that has a passionate vision and actually goes out to make it happen. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I think I'm, I, I know what your answer is, but just, uh, for the sake of formality, uh, return of the living dead. What do you give it? Return of the living dead. <laughs> I'm going to raise both brows, man. Oh, oh. <laughs> Both fully intrigued, fully entertained, and actually made me want to continue moving forward with this podcast. Nice. Two brows up and a salute to trash. Exactly. I salute trash. Return of the Living Dead. Highbrow. <laughs> Highbrow. Do you ever fantasize about being killed? Never. Do you ever wonder? About all the different ways of dying, you know, violently. I wonder, like, what would be the most horrible way to die? Try not to think about dying too much. Mm. So, what do we have for the listeners next time, Todd? So, I have what I think is a... French delectable for you. Uh, Truffaut's 400 Blows. Um, Obviously one of the most significant films in kicking off the French New Wave. And minus the French New Wave, how can we really talk about contemporary art cinema? So I think it's a good place to go. Truffaut, 400 Blows for me. And uh, so that's two French films and an Italian film so far that Todd has assigned me. Um, and we'll have to watch my Francophile tendencies. Yeah. To well, no, it's it's fine. I, I've given him two American films so far, so I figured I'd switch it up a bit. Um, and so for the next show, I am going to have Todd watch Ruggiero Diodato's 1980 unimpeachable masterpiece, Cannibal Holocaust. Ah, I've heard of this one. I'm excited. 
I get excited when I've actually heard the title. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know what? Believe it or not, it is on Hulu Plus. Awesome. Uncut from, as far as I can tell, completely uncut on Hulu Plus. All the better. Yeah. I love it when our exchanges are simple. And I have the criterion of 400 blows. So awesome. you get an extra treat. So, uh, you, you have that to look forward to 400 blows and uh, cannibal Holocaust coming up for next time. And, uh, until then I'm Todd and I'm keeping it artsy <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Cullen and I'm going to keep it crass. Good night. Y'all.